John chapter 10, we'll read from verse 1 through verse 30. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter by the door into the fold of the sheep, but climbs up some other way, he is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is a shepherd of the sheep. To him the doorkeeper opens, and the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he puts forth all his own, he goes ahead of them, and the sheep follow him because they know his voice. A stranger they simply will not follow, but will flee from him because they do not know the voice of strangers. This figure of speech Jesus spoke to them, but they did not understand what those things were which he had been saying to them. So Jesus said to them again, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who is not the owner of the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and is not concerned about the sheep. I am the good shepherd and I know my own and my own know me. Even as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep which are not of this fold. I must bring them also and they will hear my voice and they will become one flock with one shepherd. For this reason, the Father loves me because I lay down my life so that I may take it again. No one has taken it from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I received from my Father. A division occurred again among the Jews because of these words. Many of them were saying, he has a demon and is insane. Why do you listen to him? Others were saying, these are not the sayings of one demon possessed. A demon cannot open the eyes of the blind, can he? At that time, the feast of the dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter and Jesus was walking in the temple in the portico of Solomon. The Jews then gathered around him and were saying to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, these testify of me. But you do not believe because you are not of my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. 
Well, let's seek the Lord together. Let's pray. Our great God, we come to you at the beginning of the week to express our dependence upon you, to lay your worth before you in our childlike stumbling words, to express your worship and to say to you, God, that because you have first loved us, every Christian here this morning, with every Christian across the world and every Christian down through time, can say that we love you. We feel that our love is so far beneath what we wish it would be, and what we wish it would be is far beneath what you deserve. But it is a real love, a love of a child for a parent, the reverence of a, of a subject for a king. You are our creator and you are our redeemer. You have sustained us each moment, even when we denied your existence, whether with our words, but more likely just with our lives. We lived as if we were the king and as if the things that the scripture said were weightless. We thank you for the explanations that Christ gives throughout the Gospels and especially in response to those who were antagonists and who attacked his claims and he uses those moments, even the sinful wrong response of humanity. We see how you use that for the good of your people. We thank you for the explanation that there is a good shepherd. Unlike the hireling who runs when things are dangerous, he gives his life for his people. We thank you that there is a real door that we may enter through, that through the finished work of your son, we don't have to keep walking off the edge of a cliff, but by your great mercy and grace, by the wonderful working in our own souls, we can turn in repentance, believe what you say to the worst of sinners, Turn away from the cliff and walk through a door to meet you without shame. We thank you that there is a real sheepfold that is made up of Jew and Gentile, of every tongue and tribe, every nation will be represented in that great company that worships you. We thank you for a pasture, for a life abundant. None of these things are things that we could have provided for ourselves, Father. And the enemy lies about you and tells us that these are just words. But he told the same lie back then. We see the Jews saying that anyone who made those claims must be demon-possessed. We don't want to join our voices to the doubter who lied 2,000 years ago and every day since. So we come together this morning to say, we celebrate the good shepherd raised from the dead, ascended, ruling on high. We celebrate the fact that you are still the friend of sinners, even though you are exalted. You have not, forgetten, you have not forgotten your people. You cannot forget your promises. So we come to you this morning to praise you and to ask that you would help us to see you again so clearly explained in scripture that our eyes would 
that the, that the blinders would fall away, that the cultural view of you, the small ideas that we have of redemption would be shaken loose, that our ears would be unplugged again, our hearts warmed again, the chains broken again, and we could just gladly, fully, wholly, Give ourselves afresh to you. God, you owe, we owe you everything, all our heart's affections, all our thoughts, all our responses. So give us this morning what we need to know and to love you. And then we pray that you would use our very common and insignificant lives in such a significant kingdom this week. Get glory to yourself in our thoughts, in our private moments, in our families, in this church, but God, in our workplaces, in our neighborhoods. May Christ's name be exalted from east to west. We ask it in his name. Amen. Well, we are returning again to the theme of discipleship. We finished last week looking at Matthew chapter 10. That's a passage where Christ has so much to say about discipleship. Um, there, there are the tasks that he gives those disciples in that early missionary effort. And then there are a number of warnings where Christ explains to them that when they go out representing him, that there would be a very definite response that they could expect. And some of that passage is limited to what happened 2,000 years ago. And some of the passage applies throughout the years to every genuine believer. But when we talk about discipleship, you know, we are not talking about the discipleship that we do in a church setting. So an older believer walking alongside a younger believer. We're talking about the discipleship that occurs throughout the Christian life where each believer is being discipled directly, in a sense, by Christ, that he has become our teacher and we are his pupil, but not like the teaching that occurs in a college classroom or in a high school, but not just the transformation, uh, the transference, rather, of information from, from Jesus' notes to our notes, but an on-the-job kind of training, an apprenticeship where... We have entered into a lifelong, authoritative, one-on-one, -on -one, exclusive relationship with the king of everything. And he has engaged, has promised, has obligated himself to be our teacher. And so we're very grateful for those things. I want us to think again about two common lies that we face every time we come to a passage, like we did in Matthew 10, where we read Christ's own statements about disciples. One lie is this, and it's very easy to believe, that what Jesus says about following him in that particular passage, whichever one you're reading, it is an admirable statement. I mean, it is right. But it is not for the common Christian. And that's easy to believe, as I mentioned before, because sometimes when we're reading passages like Matthew 10, 
There were aspects of that that were unique to that time only. And, and it's not always easy to tell which, which principles belong to that moment, to which principles, you know, last throughout Christianity. So in Matthew chapter 10, for example, when he said, as I send you out, you are only to go to the Jews and not to the Gentiles and not to the Samaritans, but just to my people and tell them the good news. Well, that obviously is no longer a restriction on us. But when he says things about representing him and how it will cost us even perhaps the love of family members, that's an enduring cost that every generation of Christian has seen. So because of that mixed nature of passages, sometimes it's easy to believe the lie. I, I, I see Matthew chapter 10. It's a great chapter, but it's not for people like me. Another reason that that is an easy lie to believe is that sometimes the tasks and the warnings and the principles, because they're set in a first century picture, you know, so, you know, you just can't help but read Matthew 10 and you think of, you know, pictures that you see in a picture Bible. There's a donkey, there are men dressed in bathrobes, and they're going from town to town with a staff in their hand and sandals on their feet, and you think, that has nothing to do with my life Monday to Friday. I mean, I don't ever have that kind of life. And because of the strangeness of the immediate setting of the passage, you may feel that the lie is actually true, that those principles for following Jesus don't apply to you. So that's one lie. Great statements about discipleship from the discipler. We admire them, we study them, but they're not for us. The other lie is they are for us, but I don't believe that it is a possible path for me in my present life. You know, right here and now, maybe in some idealistic life, you know, maybe if we all have a list of ifs, you know, God, if only this were different and if this were different, if the marriage were different, if the kids were different, if work were different, if the church were different, then I think I could probably apply those principles and walk with you. If I were different, if my past experiences were different, if my present, you know, schedule were different, if I just had more time, I could follow you. So it's very easy to believe the lie that while these statements in Scripture where Christ says things like, you know, if you're going to follow me, you're going to have to take up your cross and die daily. We say, well, no, no that's true for Christians. But if someone gets underneath the surface and got you to tell the truth, you would say, I just don't think that I can walk that path. So I feel that I am a Christian. I'm not saying I'm not a Christian. Christ is my only hope. I have given myself to him. But when I, when I think about the path of a disciple, being discipled by Christ in 2023, I think, well, not me. That's for other people. So I guess you're only left with the conclusion that you're kind of a B-class citizen. That I'm a Christian, but I'm not that kind of a Christian. I'm a Christian that's kind of doomed to a second-rate citizenship. And I don't blame God, I blame myself. But I think I'll probably have to just kind of stay on the back edge of the room, you know? The kind of a person that comes into this room, something wonderful is happening, and you think, I, I, I don't know if I belong here. And so you kind of sheepishly hide in the corner. 
When you read statements about having to love him supremely above all others, like Matthew chapter 10 says, or be, to be prepared for betrayal, even by loved ones in your family, like Matthew 10 mentions, or laying down your claims, your rights, your life itself daily, as Matthew 10 claims, it is very easy to believe the lie that that's a, a bar that's set too high for me. And, and then I think there's another problem, other than what the Bible says, you know, we can read biographies or we can listen to sermons or podcasts or, and you hear the Christian life described in such glowing colors. And it's not that it's not true. It's that it's not the whole picture. And so, you know, maybe I, I think of modern courses like this a lot where the modern course will just repeat over and over some great statement about your love for Christ. You know, I, I only live to worship you. And you say that over and over. And while you're saying it, you think, but that's not quite true. There are other things that you could say about my life. I do love the Lord. I do want to worship him, but that's not the whole picture. There's a lot of ups and then there's a lot of downs. And if you don't get an accurate biblical picture of the Christian life, you may think that the Christian life is all ups and people that are his disciples you know, the A-class citizens of the kingdom that they, they live here and you're here, you know. But that's not true. There is no Christian that lives like this. Not, not until glory. We're, we're travelers and we stumble. We are combatants on a field of battle. And we have scars and wounds that shouldn't have been there, perhaps. We are believers who doubt and ask questions. We are lovers who sometimes let old lovers sneak in the back door. We are very imperfect. But a Christian can live the life of the disciple that Christ describes. Now, one way, there, there are a number of ways to combat that, those lies. Well, the, these are great statements, but they're not really for us. Or these are statements that are for Christians, but I don't think that a person like I could ever live up to that. Well, there are some ways to put those lies to death. And if we don't put those lies to death, then every time we look at a passage where Christ describes his disciples or the life of those that follow him, the Christian, then there will be an immediate voice in the back of your mind saying, that's not for you or that's for you, but you know that you can't really live up to it. And I would say that if I were a betting man, I could become rich on this bet that you have already heard that this morning and that someone who is much more eloquent than me has already been saying in the back of your mind, we're going to look at another passage where Jesus describes those that are his disciples. And those are wonderful, but it's just not you. Some ways you can put that lie to death. One is you can look directly at the discipler. And we do that a lot. For that purpose, Isaiah 9, Isaiah 11. You remember those passages as, as we were leading up to the Christmas season? Emmanuel is coming. And in Isaiah 9 and 11 in particular, this cosmic, worldwide, international picture of, of the impact of his rule. So you go from those big pictures and then... You go to the passages where Jesus says, if you're my disciple, you will. And the doubts rise up in your mind. I'm just not that person. Quit 
starting with looking at you and you start by looking at the discipler. And if you read Isaiah 9 and if you read Isaiah 11, can you not believe the word of God enough to say, if that's the teacher, I think that even I could learn. Then there's Matthew 8 and 9 that we looked at before the Isaiah passages. Christ mighty to save. Not not the big cosmic proportions, not the universal proportions of Christ's rule, but the, the application of that to the specific diseases of our soul, pictured in the diseases that humanity has, whether it's demon possession and a person self-destructing and destroying anybody else around them, or whether it's just the fever that won't let you get out of bed and serve other people. Every angle, Matthew gathers together those accounts, and we see that Christ is mighty to save. Can you not look at those, and then look at the passage where Christ says, if you're going to follow me, you have to take up your cross daily. Can you not look at those mighty to save passages and say, If that's the one that will walk next to me, I think that even I could take up a cross. So that's really, in my opinion, the best way to put to death daily, and it has to be daily, the lie that the passages about discipleship in Scripture are not really for you. Another way is to look at the path. And that might seem a bit strange or counterintuitive, we say, because you think, well, the path is the thing that terrifies me. When you talk about the the life of a disciple, that's what makes me think, "I I don't think I could be a disciple. But really, when you read the scriptural statements about what it is to live with him and by him and for him, hour after hour, day after day, in a in a real fallen world. I find that the biblical descriptions of the path of a Christian are extremely practical and desirable. Or what Paul says, reasonable, your reasonable service. Devote yourself to God as as a living sacrifice. That's quite reasonable. Now, it's not reasonable and it's not practical according to the world's understanding and so if you're still thinking like that, then there's, there's no question you could not follow Christ. But if you think about the biblical path and you think about who it is that calls you to follow him, a careful investigating of the passages that describe how we are to live with those people around us, how we are to live before the face of God. If you quit putting, if you quit adding a halo to every command you read in the Bible and every Christian you read about in the Bible, it would do you a great deal of good. What does the Bible itself say about the Christian life? Right? It is not this life here where you glow and just float above life's sorrows. So an honest look at the path, I find it very encouraging. But there is another way to put those lies to death that the disciple's life could not be your life. And that is to look at how God makes you a disciple or at redemption. And Chuck talked about some of this this morning in the prayer time. What has God done to deliver you and to save you and to be able for Jesus of Nazareth to look at you right now in your present condition? If you're a believer, if you're a follower and to say, mine And for you to be able to look at Christ by faith in the scripture 
And in all honesty, even in spite of the, the shortcomings and you know, the, the shameful stumblings of your life, you can look at him and say, mine, what does it take for the God-man to call you his? That's what we'll look at this morning. And later, throughout the next coming weeks, we'll hit the other ones as we go. And hopefully, we will have enough weapons, you know, uh, en- enough tools in our garden shed to constantly hack at the root of the lie that for the Christian, uh, those statements about the life of a disciple, being discipled by Jesus Christ is a nice idea, but not practical. Well, let's think about this whole issue of what God does to make us a disciple. We're going to back up, and I want us to, you know, we're kind of backing way up theologically from Matthew 10. How did those guys even become disciples? And I want us to think about how you become a disciple. What does it take for Christ to look at you and call you his? To write over your life, his. Well, John chapter 10 that Chuck read, wonderful chapter where Christ uses a very simple picture to describe the relationship of a believer to their Lord, and it's the picture of the sheep and the shepherd. And all of us can get that. You know, we don't even have to be Middle Eastern. We don't have to be living back in the first century. We are, if you're a Christian, you are a sheep that belongs to Christ. And he comes to rescue you, and he comes to, you know, he seeks us out, he draws us after himself, he calls, we hear his voice in Scripture, like a sheep hears the voice of a shepherd, and we follow that. And the other shepherds, well, they call too. We don't follow their voice. That's not ours. When Christ in John chapter 10 explains this to the Jews, he's explaining it to people who are quite familiar with the old covenant. And really, the the dynamic of you walking with God right now is not essentially different than the dynamic of the old covenant believer walking with God. There are some wonderful differences, but they were both lives that are They're both lives lived by faith. They're both lives that are responsive to God and to his word or to his voice. And if you think about the extraordinary ways that God guided Israel, like when they were in the wilderness, having been brought out of Egypt, and for 40 years they must stay in the wilderness until that rebellious generation is all buried in the sand and the younger generation then get a chance to enter the promised land. Do you remember how they knew where to go? They didn't wander. We talk about wandering, but that's not really accurate. They were guided for 40 years, graciously, with real love and pity and mercy. God continues to be their God. And so by day, there is the the tabernacle set up there, that tent where they met with God. And above the tabernacle by day, there was a pillar of cloud. And by night, there was a pillar of fire. And if that was still there, if it was stationary, then you don't go anywhere. And if that starts to move, then you pack everything up and move. And God is in control of all of that. And so they followed him. He could say back then in the book of Exodus, he could say, my people, Israel, my people belong to me and they follow me wherever I lead them. So it's the same really for the Christian There is a difference, though, in John chapter 10. One of the differences is Jesus of Nazareth, the God-man, real human, real God, looks at the Jews and says, my sheep follow me and my voice. In other words, 
I'm him. I am the I am. I am God. God the Son, the second person of the Trinity. And the Jews try to kill him in this chapter because they know that the claims he makes are only appropriate if he's saying, I am your God from the beginning. I am he. But he's a human too. And so, of course, that blows their minds and not being prepared adequately because of their unbelief, not studying the Old Testament carefully enough to, to expect this, they want to kill him as a, as a liar. That brings us to verse 27, and that's the verse that we're going to kind of use to guide us this morning, and that is when he says that my sheep hear my voice and they follow me. So if you don't get hung up on the metaphor of sheep and shepherd because that's interchangeable. He could say, my subjects hear the voice of their king and they do his laws. Or, or my brothers and sisters hear the voice of their elder brother and, and they follow my example. But here he uses sheep and shepherd. But what we're really talking about is the life of a disciple, a Christian. My disciples hear my voice and they follow me. My sheep hear my voice. They follow me. Now, there is an unalterable spiritual law that is stated here. And I want us to notice it is not a command for you. It is not this. If you're my sheep, you better follow me. That, that wouldn't have been wrong to say, but that's not what he says here. He doesn't say this. If you want to become one of my sheep, then start following me. He could have said that. But that's not what he says. There's no command here. This is not like adding an extra burden to the Christian. I have to do this and this and this and this. And I got to remember, I've got to follow. It's a wonderfully encouraging statement. He's making a, a, a statement, a fact. And it's universal. And it's always been the case. And it always will be the case. And there is not one exception. And here's the universal principle. Every person that Christ says he or she is mine, that you are his. If he can say that you are his, his sheep, his subject, his follower, his disciple, then you will follow him. That's why when we look at the passages where Christ describes what is required to follow him, and those passages might terrify you, that's why looking back and asking, okay, if every one of his sheep follow him or every one of his disciples follow him or his subjects, how, whatever metaphor you want to use for a Christian, then surely one of the great questions is, how is it that I am one of his sheep? And how does that guarantee that I will follow him? If I am one of his, if his is written above my soul, then I will follow. But what does it take to make me his? A couple of hundred years ago, a man named Edward Payson preached a sermon to his church in Portland, Maine, not Portland, Oregon. Little church in Portland, Maine. He was a graduate from Harvard University, converted at college, uh, godly parents. He was renowned in his day. He died fairly young. He, he was well known in his day for his godliness, particularly his prayer life, his public prayers. People would write them down. Sometimes they would say his public prayers were more penetrating than his sermons. Fifty years following his death, the most popular name in 
the New England area of the United States, so this is the early 1800s, early first half of the 1800s, the most popular name for a boy was Edward or Payson, Edward Payson, named after this man. When he came to the church, it was a pretty liberal church. They said that they were Christians, of course. Uh, they had their Bibles. They, they claimed to be, you know, believing in the Westminster Confession. It might have been a Congregationalist church. He noticed that when he started preaching, he said, they, my people changed quickly. Not the right kind of change, he said. They, they changed tongues. They, they adopted evangelical tongues. You know what that means? It means... When, when he starts preaching and saying things like, you must be born again, and Christ is our righteousness, those kind of things, instead of saying, we're good people, we'll try harder, they just changed their language. But he noticed that their lives hadn't changed, and so he talked to them about this issue of belonging to Christ. Payson, even though he was a Harvard-educated guy, was one of those unique preachers that oh, his library was very, very small by choice. Unlike, for example, Jonathan Edwards' library. And in his, with this small library, one of the things that we find in Payson's sermons, which you can still find today, is the sermons are extremely simple. You feel that this is a guy that thought about Bible verses all week long about the passage and boiled it down into some very simple pictures. And he does that when it comes to describing how you can be his. And I want to steal his pictures, all right? Payson mentions five ways, and some of you remember that we, we looked at these many years ago. Five ways that Christ can call you his. And these are ways, the reason they're so simple is they're ways that any of us could call something ours. Like we'll say, whose is that? You say, well, that's mine. What do you mean that's yours? And you say, well, it's mine because... So all five of these things that Payson mentioned that I want to give you, and I'll give you some passages that go along with it, these five pictures, it's clear as day that Christ has a right to call us his. And we know that we are his and therefore we will be enabled to follow him if these five things are true of us. So what has God done to make you his? Because if you can get a right view of that, then you can put to death the fear that you wouldn't be able to follow him. So let me give you them quickly. Number one, the Christian is Christ's by creation. In fact, that, of course, applies to everything in creation. Everything that we see, everything we've read about, everything that's yet to come, everything in this universe, the galaxies, from the microscopic to the, to the you know, the magnificent and, and immensely big, it's all Christ's. And it's his by creation. A few things are so obvious when we talk about this. One is that people have a right to call something theirs if they've made it. I mean, that's why we have copyright laws, you know, and patents. We say, well, I designed that. I invented that. I made that. So it's mine. And the law recognizes that. And we feel that that's fair. If you spend a long time making something, when you finally bring it out, if someone walks up and says, that's mine, you, you would, you'd be enraged. You said, no, 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 that's mine. Well, why do you say it's yours? Because I just made it. If we make something, we feel that we have a right to it. You are Christ's because he made you. We know that we didn't make ourselves. The Bible is unashamedly clear about this. 
It's shocking to us how clear it is, but I imagine how shocking it was in Jesus' day or in the, in the decades immediately following his death, his crucifixion, his, his burial, his resurrection, for people to go around and risk their lives to say, Christ is not only the Messiah, but he is actually the creator of all things. The person you heard on those dusty streets, the person you ignored, or the person you admired from a distance, but later cried out for his crucifixion, he is our creator. You would, can you imagine how crazy that would have sounded to people? But it is true. As God and man, the God-man in his deity, the second person of the Trinity, the Son, is the agent of our creation. He created you because he created all things. He created all things from nothing. He didn't fashion all of this from something that already existed. When I say that if you make something, you have a right to say it's mine. But of course, is there, an, is there a, you know, an objection that rises in your mind? Is there, you say, wait, 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 wait. There, there is an exception to this. You know, if you go into someone's room, think of little children, and you go to your friend's house, and you go into their closet, and you get their Legos out. And you make something really big and you start to walk out of the house with it. If they say, where are you going? That's mine. And you say, no, I made it. They would say, I know you made it, but that, you made it with my stuff. If God made you and me and all of this out of somebody else's stuff, then I suppose we could argue with him that he doesn't have a right. But the Bible says that God spoke and all the material universe came into being effortlessly. And he fashioned it in a way that was perfect. In John chapter 1, John tells us, you're familiar with these verses. In the beginning was the word, that's Christ, the message. And the word was with God from the very beginning. And the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. So there's someone who's described as God and yet with God. And we understand that only a triune God could be described this way. All things came into being through him. And apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. Later in 1 Corinthians, Paul explains this more fully. Listen to what he says in chapter 8 of 1 Corinthians. For us, for the Christian, there is but one God, the Father, from whom are all things. He is the source. And we exist for him. And, okay, one God and one Lord, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, by whom are all things. And we exist through him. Your discipler, Christian, calls you his. Because he made you. The father entrusts the son with creation of all matter, of all the galaxies, according to the good pleasure of the father. And the son does it. And then the son takes our humanity in time and comes under the law and keeps the law, and teaches us, and dies for us, and calls us to follow. He doesn't just make creation in general. You are wonderfully created, the Bible says. That is, it's quite shocking how he created you. Humanity is made fundamentally different than all other material life. You are the crowning achievement of the material creation. You were made in the image of God. You have in you something that nothing else in this universe has that's material. You have a material body. You're created in time. We age. 
but you were made in God's image. You have a spiritual ability to know the creator, to be known by the creator, to hold communion with the creator. You were knit together by God in the womb of your mother. You are not an accidental combination of chromosomes. You were created with the most astonishing capacities and abilities. And even in humanity's ruin, you know, it's like, it's like humanity was this beautiful china set, the most beautiful of all the china sets, and then someone just comes and throws it on the ground and tramples it, and all the cups and dishes are just destroyed hopelessly, it looks like. That's kind of the way humanity looks today. But even in that condition, we see glimpses at times of such genius you think, well, how can a person do that? And what we're seeing is the fingerprint of God. Why aren't you happy to eat, sleep, and reproduce? I mean, the dogs are happy with that. Other animals are happy with that. I, I've never known a dog to complain that it had all the food it wanted and all the sleep it wanted. You have been created by God for God. If God is your creator and you did not create yourself, then surely you see that he has a right to call you his. A second, Christ calls you his by inheritance. And this is where we talk, we're really backing up from creation. So you would think that creation is the start of the story, but of course it's not. Ephesians, other places, the Bible talks about something that occurred before creation that God in some wonderful, mysterious way that we find hard to understand. We under, but we do know this, that there was an agreement between the Father and the Son. We call it the, the uh, covenant of redemption or the eternal counsels. In these counsels, if we can describe God in such human words, the Father chooses the Son to be the one who will redeem a people, who will rescue sinners when there are sinners. And the son fully embraces the father's will, knowing all that it will require of him. And the father then promises the son an inheritance. We see this throughout scripture. Psalm 2, ask of me and I will give you the nations as your inheritance. And the very ends of the earth is your possession. It's not just Christians that Christ owns. As the God man who obeyed the father, enthroned at the father's right hand, he is the heir of all of it. Colossians chapter 1. He is the firstborn of all creation. Not that right before creation started, he was born. This is the Jewish term of the heir. In the Jewish family, the firstborn son is the heir. He gets the inheritance. And so when Paul's describing Christ, he's not saying, well, he's just one of creation, but he's the first one. He's the most impressive created thing. He's not he is eternal God. For by him all things were created, he says, both in the heavens and the earth, visible and invisible, thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities. All things have been created through him, through Christ, and for Christ. So he's the firstborn. He's the heir of the household. Hebrews chapter 1. In these last days, God has spoken to us in his son, whom he appointed Heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. 
Paul in Romans, 11 chapters of theology where he describes how desperate our need is, how wonderful the provision of Christ is. He, he gives all those explanations. And after 11 chapters, he ends it in verse 36 of that 11th chapter by saying this, for from him, Christ, and through him and to him are all things. Now, I think that everybody would agree that if your name is in the will of a wealthy person, if you're named in that legal document and they are of sound mind and body, and you get a call from an, uh, a lawyer and they say, uh, we would like for you to know that you are named as, uh, as a recipient of a will, Mr. So-and-so, he's passed away, and you need to be here for the reading of the will if you can, and you show up and let's say an enormous amount of that person's wealth is handed to you. And maybe you didn't know him very well. And it's shocking to people that knew him better. And they think that's not fair. If someone comes up to you and says, that's not yours. You don't get the house. You don't get the bank account. You don't get the business. All you have to do is point to the will and say, but that's my name. Christian, when you read a passage that says, follow me and you feel that's doesn't look like I could do it. Why not go back to the will and look and say, but I'm his and his follow him. And I'm his because my name is there. I am his inheritance. I'm his creation, but that's not enough. Let me give you a third thing. We are Christ's by purchase. Another simple picture. If you buy something with money that you've worked for and saved up, you go into the store. Let's say you go to the mall in Tupelo. You buy some sweater. Uh, every, every winter, I try to buy a new favorite sweater. Um, and so I had to return mine this year. I didn't like it enough. So I don't have a new sweater. I feel very you know, damaged by the fact that I didn't get a new sweater this year. But if I bought a new sweater and I walk out of the mall with a new sweater in my bag... And a security officer in plain clothes catches me and pulls me aside, shows me his badge and says, you're a shoplifter. You're in trouble. You've stolen that. And I say, no, it's mine. And, they, and the security officer says, no, it's not yours. And well, what do I have to do? All I have to do is open the bag and show him the receipt. And if I can show him that I purchased it, he will apologize and say, you're right. It's yours. Christ purchased Every follower, every disciple, that's how you're his. It's not enough that he created you or that he inherited you. He had to purchase you. Now, the Bible says this in different places, places that perhaps you haven't noticed, like Acts chapter 20, verse 28. Paul describes what a believer is. And he says, they are the church of God, which he, God, purchased with his own blood, obviously speaking of the Son of God. Later, Peter writes this, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. Turn to the book of Revelation and you see the great company innumerable surrounding the throne of God and, and praising the Lamb. And this is what they say about Christ in that heavenly scene of worship. Worthy are you to take the book and break its seals. For you were slain 
And purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. So we're his by purchase. And you could simply say, well, look at the receipt. Look at the cross he purchased. Even a person like me. Why does Christ have to purchase us? If he made us, why does he have to purchase us? An artist that makes, you know, a painting doesn't then run out in the auction when his, when his painting is being sold. He doesn't run out and sit in the seats of the, at the auction and have to bid on his own painting. It's his. If he created it, why does he have to purchase it? If he inherited it, if you inherited something, you might have to pay a tax on it, but you don't have to go buy the thing itself. And it's because all humanity has been sold by our own choice into the hands of an enemy. It was a fraudulent sale. It wasn't valid. None of us, Adam and Eve didn't, and you and I, every time we've sinned, it's like we handed ourselves over to the wrong person. We sold ourselves to the wrong master. This other master promises us that he'll give us everything we want at, at a cheaper cost. We'll get what we want when we want it, how we want it. We get to stay in control and we get the life we want. And we ignore God. We think he lies to us. And we believe the enemy. We sell ourselves into the slavery of sin. So from the very beginning, Adam and Eve, and then every day we've repeated it, every human has, there's this fraudulent sale. You and I sold ourselves to sin for the promise of its happiness. But you and I didn't belong to ourselves. We had no right to sell what wasn't ours. Be like you going and getting your friend's car and selling it and pocketing the cash. But it's not your car to sell. You were not yours to sell. You couldn't go to sin and say, okay, maybe this isn't a great deal, but it's the best deal I got going right now. So, okay. I'll sell myself to you, but you don't belong to you. And so in doing that, we have brought ourselves under the wrath of God. The law of God is offended. The, the justice of God cries out for payment. There is a penalty that is due every time we have sold ourselves to a false master. And the penalty for sin is death. So if Christ wants to call you his and you're going to follow him, then he's going to have to ransom you from the penalty, from the doom that you and I earned. And he does by dying as our representative on the cross. Christ purchases what he made, what he sustained, what he inherits because we sold ourselves. And by that terrible death on the cross where he suffers the wrath of God, he is able to look at you and say, you are his. And if you are his, because of that cross, you can follow. Let me give you the fourth thing that Payson mentioned. He said, we also sometimes say something belongs to someone if they have gotten it by Conquest. Now, we don't think of that very much anymore, probably because when we think of one nation conquering another nation and taking its land, or one king conquering another kingdom and taking its land or its resources, we don't think of that as a just claim. You know, why did you go over and conquer their land? You don't have a moral claim to that. But think of a different situation. Think of a kingdom that was ruled by the perfect king, and that king 
has handed that to his son, the prince. And the son also is perfect. And the people in that kingdom had everything they wanted for happiness. But a a usurper comes to the edge of that kingdom. And this false, this pretender lies to them and says, well, you've got it pretty good, but you'd have it really good if I were your king. I wouldn't say no to anything you wanted. And little by little, that usurper's lies are believed. And he then becomes a tyrant in that land. He's not the rightful king. But for a while, he exercises a terrible tyranny. And the prince that that kingdom belongs to then goes to war against the usurper, against the tyrant, and conquers the tyrant and takes his people back from the tyrant. We see this in Scripture, Colossians 2. Having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, that is the law written above us, said that we owed God, And we didn't pay him. And this was hostile toward us, Paul says. Well, having canceled that out, Christ has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. When he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him, through Christ, or through it, is another way of translating it. Christ triumphed over our enemies through the cross. You remember the parable in Luke 11. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own house, his possessions are undisturbed. You can't get what he wants. He guards it. But when someone stronger than he attacks him, overpowers him, and strips his armor on which he relied, he can go into the house and take whatever he wants. And that is exactly what Christ did. He goes to war against the enemy, whether you call the enemy sin or the devil or the, or the world or death or hell, or whether you consider, you know, the wrath of God against us. Christ has gone to war and he has accomplished everything needed to justly and rightly free us. And when our enemy will not let us go, he publicly humiliates him at the cross. What looked like the victory of the enemy, of course, is not the victory of the enemy. And Christ is raised victorious and seated as ruler of all now. He conquered to get you. Because your enemy doesn't let you go just because he should. Recently, someone read me this passage in uh, Isaiah. And in chapter 50, 51... Let me see if I can find it again. I don't want to read all those chapters. Oh, I think it's 51 and 52. This is what he says. It says, and I'll just read 52. Awake, awake, clothe yourself in strength, O Zion, the people of God. Clothe yourself in beautiful garments, O Jerusalem, holy city. For the uncircumcised and the unclean will no longer come to you. Shake yourself from the dust. Rise up, O captive. Loose yourself from the chains that were around your neck, O captive daughter of Zion. For thus says the Lord, you were sold for nothing. That's what we did. And you will be redeemed without money. For thus says the Lord God, my people went down at the first into Egypt to reside there. Then the Assyrian oppressed them without cause. Now, therefore, what I what do I have here, declares the Lord, seeing that my people have been taken away without cause. Again, the Lord declares, those who rule over them howl, and my name is continually blasphemed all day long. Therefore, my people shall know my name. Therefore, in that day, 
I am the one who's speaking. Here I am. And he goes on to describe how he will fight against every one of their enemies so that they can be his, a people that were already his. So Christ conquers our enemies. The last thing is that we know that something is yours if you're given it as a gift. So, you know, when Thanksgiving, or not Thanksgiving, I'm way behind the times. When Valentine's Day came and went, all right? Um, so you, you give your Valentine a gift. And they say, thank you. Now, if someone comes up to them at work and sticks their hand down in the bag of whatever you gave them, pulls out chocolates and starts eating it, and they say, th- th- those are mine. And that person who's eating the chocolate says, well, why do you think you have a right to them? Well, because they were given to me. And you show them the name on the card. It's, it's mine. There is a twofold giving that makes every Christian able to say that we are his. And because we are his, we will be able to follow him. The father gives you to the son. We talked about the inheritance. But there's more passages than just that. In John chapter 6, Christ says that all that the Father gives me will come to me. Notice those verb tenses. There's a group of people that presently belong to the Father. One day he will give them to the Son, and they will, in the future, they will come to him. God in eternity past has chosen to show his mercy to a company that no person could number, and they have been entrusted into the hands of the Son as a gift. In John chapter 17, when Christ is praying that high priestly prayer, he says this in verse 1, 2, and 3, and then I'll jump to verse 24. Jesus spoke these things, lifting up his eyes to heaven, and he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, even as you gave him authority over all flesh, over everything, that to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. Later he says, I desire, Father, that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, so they may see my glory, which you have given me. For you loved me before the foundation of the world. Long before creation, Paul says, amazingly, mysteriously, God gave the Son a kingdom, a bride, a people, a family. And there never was, not in any moment of human history, the possibility that redemption would not be accomplished or that Jesus would give himself on the cross and not one person respond because the Father gave him a people. Christian, if you are his, one of the reasons you are his is because God wrote his over you long before you were created. But as wonderful as those five things are, that is not enough to make you his. If there is one thing lacking still, you cannot say, I am his. Because there is the second aspect of the gift, and that is you. Give yourself. God creating you. Christ inheriting you. Christ conquering you or purchasing you. Christ being given you. You're still not his. Not in the way that a disciple is his, until you turn and say to him, I am yours. 
When the Christian, or when, when the sinner, sorry, when the sinner hears all that God has done to make someone like you his, and suddenly it, it's like you get it, you know, you understand it, but getting it is not enough because you get it. He gets you and you say to him, I wholly and immediately and without any restraint, without, without any conditions, without any hesitation or restriction, I joyfully give you me. It's repentance and faith. I turn from the false lovers and hopes and I turn to you and because I believe what you say in the Gospels, I hand it all over to you. And it's not just a thing you do once. I, I did that 20 years ago when I became a Christian. There's a sense in which you're glad to repeat that every day. It's not that you lose your salvation and get saved again, you know, every morning. But every morning you reaffirm your vows of love to the king. Every day it's like the enemy would come and with all of his lies and his half-truths about you, about God... It's like he wants to erase the his that's written over your life. And he cannot really, but you gladly pick up the marker the next morning and say, no, I am his. Would you like to wake up and live for yourself today? No. And you write his over you again. Well, what about your kids? No, they're his. What about your wife? My marriage is his. My money is his. My time is his. It's all his now. And we wake up and Offer ourselves again to him. In AC's study upstairs, there is a wooden, is a, there's a plaque on his, one of his desks. And it has a picture of a hand holding a heart lifted up to God. It is actually John Calvin's motto and the picture that goes with it. Calvin's doing. And there's, he, not Hebrew, there is, sorry, there's Latin written around this picture on Calvin's motto. And it is my favorite thing about John Calvin. I, I don't read John Calvin often, but I love John Calvin just for this quote. This was his motto, his, you know, this was his, this was the symbol that described what he longed for. In Latin, all around the hand holding up a heart, it says this, my heart I offer to you, O Lord, promptly. And sincerely. And that's. That's part of you being able to say. I'm his. Now. As we close. Two things to consider. First. None of what we've been saying. When we talk about you following. Let me say that. When we describe. The, the life of a disciple. It is the life of a follower. So there's observation. There's submission, there's trust, there's love, there's obedience, there's imitation. All those things that go into the Christian's response to Christ, following does not make you his, his sheep. If you're not his sheep and you try to follow, you won't follow far and you'll find that it's impossible because you've not given yourself to him. If you just want to add, you know, morality or religious duties to your life and say, well, now I made myself a Christian, but it doesn't work that way. You give yourself to him. The other things that we mentioned that God does, you don't have to fear that he would not do that. 
You come to him and say, I can't do those other things, but by the grace of Christ, I can do this. I can surrender my life to you. I can give myself to you according to your invitations, your commands. But you don't become one of his by following. Following demonstrates that you are his in all those wonderful ways. But no one has a right to say that they are his unless Christ can say, uh, I got it backwards. No one has the right to say that Christ is mine unless Christ can look at you and say, and you are mine. If we say that Christ is ours, but we don't follow him, then there's no proof that we are his because his sheep follow. And if we are not his property, if he does not know you as his then you have no right to say that he's yours. So there's nothing here about earning our salvation. There's nothing here about keeping ourselves saved. We're just talking about not playing around with words that are life and death for you, for your kids, for your spouse, for your parents, for your friends next to you. Are you his in all those wonderful ways? then he is yours. And if you are his, when you read those passages that seem to set the bar so high and you wonder, could you really live that kind of life? Then you look back at what he did to make you his and you can say, by faith, if this is what he did to make me his, I've got no reason to fear that he won't teach me how to walk with him today. I can be a disciple. Paul writes, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. And then he ends that chapter. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Amen.